I think we're going to war for real. I'll tell you one little story that I probably have never told anybody before. We got hit with a NVA sapper company supported by infantry. It's not easy and no, that one was tough, but fortunately it worked out for us. Welcome to War Stories, conversational military history. All right, what's going on, everyone? Preston Stewart with Sayer Payne from War Stories, joined today by Major General Retired John Harrell. Sir, thank you so much for taking the time to be on here today. Uh, thank you for having me today. So it is March 22nd, 2022, and we asked General Harrell to talk a little bit about um, some of his experiences in the past very unique uh, career working at, you know, starting as Marine, moving into the California National Guard, and spending a lot of time with. The Ukrainian military, which five years ago maybe wasn't uh, as important as it is right now, or at least on the world stage. So would you mind giving just a little bit of your background, how it ties into what we're seeing today in Ukraine and Russia? Sure. Um, after the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact fell apart, the uh, United States government, uh, the State Department, and military departments came up with the State Partnership for Peace. And in that program, a state national guard was um, uh, joined with one of the former Soviet republics or one of the Warsaw Pact. In our case, California got Ukraine. And so pretty much California started training with Ukraine in the early 90s, relatively right after the, uh, uh, the Soviet Union fell apart. Uh, the intent of that program was to bring the former Soviet republics and the former Warsaw Pact members up to the stage uh, where they could join NATO or the European Union. And that required uh, improvement in training, improvement of personnel, and improvement of relationships between the military department and the uh, civilian government. And so uh, California and uh, uh, the other states have had this 30 year commitment with these uh, former Soviet republics and, uh, uh, and Warsaw Pact members. And actually during the Georgia war of 2008, there were 10 National Guard soldiers <coughs> from, I can't remember which state, were actually in Georgia working on the next training event when the Russians invaded. Oh. And they had to quickly ship them from Title 32 to Title 10 and then get them out because Title 32 means you're kind of under state control, Title 10 means you're under federal control. And, and uh, so that happened really quick, but it hit the newspapers for about you know, 30 seconds and then was gone. But uh, so the relationship we have with these countries is very close. I was lucky to go pretty much every summer to the Ukraine or every other summer and train with the Ukrainians or when they came to the United States, they would come up to our schools and go to various schools and training with our regular units. And in those days, they actually had a National Guard division, 100% Ukrainian, so it was completely loyal to the new government, had the best equipment, best training. And then after a number of years, they decided they didn't need that. And so they broke that National Guard division down. <coughs> Excuse me. So the uh, we started working a lot with the paratrooper battalions, I mean, excuse me, brigades in our, you know, one-on-one -on -one training because they were the best units in the uh, Ukrainian army in the 90s, and they wanted to get them up to Western standards faster. Uh, now, I commanded um, the troops, American troops and uh, allied troops in Kosovo, and I was lucky to have a Polish-Ukrainian battalion with me there in 2005. And the only, I guess, um, well, the normal public and the newspapers are surprised at Ukrainians' capability. Uh, nobody in California National Guard was surprised that they could take on the Russians and beat them. Uh, you know, we trained with them. You know, the, it's not the same old Russian army. It, the Ukrainians are not the former Soviet army. They're very well trained. Uh, a lot of their officers have gone to our military academies and to command general staff college, war college. Hmm. Uh, so again, they're being trained up to our standard and they take the training we give them and then they go back to their army and they develop 
their own army with their own principles and, and tasks. So it doesn't look exactly like ours in the sense of, of, of how things are done because they do it their way. Uh, hmm. But they are working on basically the NATO uh, level of training. Sir, sir, what was there? Um, so 30 years for one is like, I mean, that's over, that's like at approaching two generations worth of people. Like yes. to your point, it's not the old Soviet way of doing things. It's completely different generations now, which is important distinction. But I am curious before that 30 year mark, the, the Soviet era, what was the yes. Ukrainian disposition then? Were they just sort of conscripts as a member of the, of the union itself that then would go to Moscow to train and be spread up uh, amongst the union? Or was there any sort yes. of um, Ukrainian, um, were they organic to themselves? Well, that's why I referred to that Ukrainian National Guard division. <clears throat> when Ukraine was formed, they wanted to stay independent of, of uh, Russia. So remember, they, when the, the Russian army broke apart, <clears throat> you might have been born in Belarus and you're now in Kazakhstan. And that's where your unit is. That's where you are. No way to get back. So the time uh, that Ukraine got independent, the Russian army unit, excuse me, the Soviet army units in Ukraine were that kind of a mix. So my, uh, in one of the exercises in 98, my staff was um, former Soviet officers from white Russia or Russia today. And I asked him, why are you here? He says, well, this is where my unit was when the Soviet Union fell apart. And so I, the Ukrainian army was more professional than the new Russian army, and they decided to stay here. So initially, you had this uh, hodgepodge of, of units and leaders who were out of place based on their uh, family ties, for better term. Mm. So as a result, um, it still had the Soviet flavor. So a lot of things they told us during the Cold War, that if you shoot the command tank, uh, the rest of the tanks will stop, uh, was true. Mm. Because the only one that had the map was the company commander. Mm. So if you blew his tank up, they didn't know where they were going next. Now, that didn't mean they wouldn't fight. Right. You know, they, they're, you know, they knew how to fight their equipment. And if they were in a war situation, they would fight. But they're not going to move anywhere because they don't know where they're supposed to move. So you know, other than the next intermediate objective, they have to wait until somebody tells them where they go next. That was true. Um, the, you know, the weaknesses in their equipment we were able to see up was true. Yes, a 50 caliber can take out a BTR if you shoot it in certain places. Um, so um, the graft and corruption was there when, as I, as I mentioned in our previous discussion, is when we would go out to train, we were taking a regiment of BTR uh, 80s out uh, with uh, Americans Ukrainians, Italians, um, and some other NATO allies who were training with us, we couldn't leave before eight o'clock because they didn't fuel the vehicles up until they were getting ready to go out the door. Why? Because the crews at night would come in and take, take fuel out of the tanks and sell it on the black market. Uh, one day I was able to actually convince them we really needed to get out at sunup, not eight o'clock. And so they would, okay, how many kilometers are you going? They'd only put that amount of fuel in the vehicle, and then they would put a stamp on it with a you know with a wire, so you, when they could see if it had been tampered with. And the funny story about that same day, my little Russian Jeep with my three or four staff members in ran out of fuel because my driver had siphoned the fuel off into liter bottles, <clears throat> and so we ran out of fuel. I would have to tell. I normally in the morning I'd have to tell the. Uh, the maintenance officer, how many kilometers I was going to drive. I'm, I'm inspecting the entire operation. I have no idea how many kilometers. Right. So you, you kind of guess, you know, five trips back and forth of the Yarbrough training area, it's going to be so many kilometers. Uh, well, so, you know, we ran out of gas and they said, I guess better call for more fuel. And the driver said, no, sir, wait a minute, no problem. He goes into the back, he has five liter bottles of fuel and fuels the tank back up. It siphoned it off the tank. Is that you know, what we're it, seeing? Is that what we're seeing a little bit right now during this Russian invasion? There's, it looks like the well, logistics piece is just a nightmare. Well, you got to remember the Russians, and I, I've read a couple articles on this, and, and it bears true. 
you got to remember the Russian system is about ripping off the government from the top down. The oligarchs and Putin are the reason they're so rich is this is all money that would normally in the United States be in the Treasury Department and be going out to do infrastructure and things like that. Well, the Italian tactical groups are supposed to be their category one units. In the 2014-2015 war, they were the best equipped units with the most modern comm gear, uh, drones, all the, the, the bells and whistles of a 21st Army. And they did. Those 40 battalion tactical groups had the modern equipment and it was working. You know, they were it's a, fighting better than they are today. So they expanded 170 battalion tactical groups. But as we're finding out, you know, within the same organization or the same company, some of the vehicles have encrypted comm gear, some don't. They've mixed and matched old and new equipment to get up to that 170. So the question is, where did the money go as a simple thing, communications gear, to make sure that all of your vehicles have the right communication gear? Somebody siphoned off some money and put the old communication gear and mix it in with the new. And of course, now at the company and battalion level, they're having a hard enough hard time coordinating an attack. So based on their system, and it was always kind of part of the Soviet system, everybody seems to be taken a little off the top as the money goes down to procurement. And then at procurement, somebody takes the money off the top. The resulting end state is million dollar equipment five or six million dollars equipment with shoddy tires or tires that are, you know, past their uh, uh, shelf life. It also means that you don't get to maneuver as much. And while we were assuming, including me, that in January, uh, December and January, they were maneuvering based on the, the failure of their tires and the other things like that, they weren't maneuvering, they were just sitting there. And so as a result, <clears throat> you know, they're having a hard enough time putting the company across an open field rather than let, let alone coordinating a battalion. And so that's the large part we see that the grafting corruption of the system from the oligarchs who are ripping the country off to some maintenance officer who's ripping <coughs> the uh, maintenance system off. Uh, this is the bottom line at the, at the other end. You're having equipment mm. that's failing, you're having trucks that are failing, um, all because of one, lack of professional sergeants, uh, but two is everybody thinks they have a right to take a piece of their a piece of the action on the way down. Can you talk about that sergeant, the, the, the non-commissioned officer piece? Because I imagine that was a big part of what you guys are doing with you <clears throat> military, building up the NCO Corps. Yes, remember under the Soviet system, um, which is now ancient history, um, the system never really trusted anybody out of the party. So as a result, while they do have people that wear stripes and they make more money, they're not encouraged to use initiative. Mm -hmm. So um, what that gives you is a system where officers make all the decisions. So things in our system where we expect a staff sergeant to do, a second lieutenant has to do. So he has to do not only what our second lieutenants do, but what all of his staff sergeants would do. Is, you know, tank wow. So what you're looking at is um, a lack of initiative in officers, junior officers, a lack of initiative in sergeants. And as we all know, is there's a million things that have to be done to make an army function. And 90% of those are done by sergeants. Mm -hmm. And those sergeants do it without an officer ever telling them what to do. Prime example, the Ukrainian partisans or the farmers are, were able to steal anti-tank missile or anti-aircraft missile launchers, hooking their tractors up and pulling them away. Where was the crew? Undoubtedly, that was when they were out of fuel and they were out of food and somebody had gathered them all together somewhere and nobody put vehicle guards on them, right? So the first thing that we would do if I was calling, an, uh, if you're calling chow time, you know, the platoon sergeant would call chow time, but he would make sure that the squad leaders had left a vehicle guard on each one of the vehicles, right? Simple, no brain stuff. You don't even tell anybody to do that because the right. sergeant does it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, 
whole tank companies are missing their personnel. Whole truck companies are missing their personnel. So where'd they go? Well, they were out of food, they were searching for food, but with the entire company gone, obviously they were clustered someplace, but nobody was guarding their vehicles. You know, one, of course, a lot of them didn't know they were in a war. That, you know, was part of, part of it when they crossed the border. But the fact that they don't have NCOs to do, do the normal things that you and I as soldiers and Marines and uh, airmen and, and sailors would, um, would assume is being done by our uh, junior people isn't being done. And as a result, you have these fiascos in maintenance and supply, uh, rearming you know, uh, rocket launchers, you know, almost all those basic tasks that we assume sergeants do, an officer has to supervise. And so as a result, it slows everything down. They still fight, they still fight hard, but they fight slower. Their reaction time to a changed event on the battlefield is slower because you have fewer people involved in making sure the system runs. It's, I, I don't mean to make light of this. It is a little bit funny in a sense, but any unit I've been in, we, there's always issues with a truck and a convoy. Something always happens. Runs out of gas, blows a tire, engine just blows up, whatever it might be. And there's a lot of issues you got to deal with. Um, getting them back online, maybe it's got to be towed, whatever it might be. I have never had the concern that those soldiers might just disappear and go off into the woods right. and never come back. Um, yeah. It's interesting to see that because that is not, to, to me, as we're watching this war unfold, that's not a reasonable move, but it seems to be happening over and over again. And when you layer these things on, including the lack of communication gear, it becomes more, makes more sense. That's I think exactly it's, it. it's, go ahead. I, I was just going to say real quick on that note on the, um, I think it ties in the maintenance of equipment, uh, the lack of NCOs, and really like teamwork, like building the team, because I know a lot of people love, you know, U.S. military, at least those that don't know, you have command maintenance day, at, you know, for us, I think it was on Mondays, right. you go out and you have a checklist and you have to inspect your vehicles and nobody likes doing it. It's boring. It's mundane. You're everybody loves to complain because these vehicles have been parked. You haven't used them for some time, let's say a month or something. You're not always using them. And so you definitely know it sat there for a week since the last time you were out there. And yet here you are checking a list of the same little, pretty minor things, checking the blinkers, um, checking the tires, all these little, uh, checking the oil. Why would you check the oil if it hasn't been driven anywhere? But we still go through those lists and, and inspect it because there are times when for some reason there is no oil and you don't know why. Something happened in that week and it's just that constant state of preparedness. But to me, it, it's not even about the vehicles themselves because that command maintenance day has these young NCOs that we're talking about that are team leaders now. And what they have is responsibility of, let's say, two vehicles in their team that they now are weakly accountable for. And now they also have an experienced, like a private first class, an E3 that not brand new, but pretty new. Well, they're the driver. Now they have individual accountability of one vehicle. And they sort of take ownership of it with that NCO, just supervising, making sure that the privates and the inexperienced folk understand that there are 10 things on this list and we're not going to finger drill it. We're going to do all 10 things. We're going to do them accurately and sort of holding everybody accountable for that. And then I, you know, my impression as the XO or whatever officer platoon leader is the fact that the officer isn't doing any of this, right? They are just Hopefully they don't have, they're only going into the motor pool just to sort of check in. There's no function of an officer actually checking. The only reason they would be checking oil is to literally get their hands dirty, just to let them know that they're not, let everybody know they're not a lazy officer essentially. But like all of those things, in my opinion, they just transcend um, vehicle maintenance. They transcend um, the NCO officer role all towards just, just building a cohesive like team where everybody sort of knows what they're doing. We pay attention to what we do. We're not finger drilling it. And maybe one day it, it's going to matter. We don't know, but we're still going to keep doing those sort of habits and get accustomed to that. Exactly. You're getting those habits drilled in. 
And it reminds me, I did an exchange program with the German army and it was in 94 after the wall fell down. And this unit was in East, former East Germany. And I asked the uh, battalion commander, have you noticed a difference? And he says, there's a major difference. First off, all these young recruits I'm getting are conscripts, first class people, educated, read and write, really, really good people, but they have no initiative because they grew up in a system that didn't allow initiative. And he says an example, he said, say we were having a class and we all send them out for a smoke break. And you tell one of the new conscripts, hey, in five minutes when everybody finishes their uh, cigarette, move them back into the uh, classroom. They go, yes, sir. 10 minutes later, they're still smoking cigarettes. Why? Not because the conscript is, is trying to do uh, mess things up. Mm -hmm. It's he grew up in a system where who is he to tell the rest of these people what to do? He's not a sergeant. He's not an officer. He's not a whatever. He's just a private, just like the rest of them. So mm -hmm. he didn't tell them to go back into the room because I'm not supposed to do that kind of thing. Somebody else is. Mm -hmm. And as simple as that sounds, that little vignette that the uh, German colonel told me, um, and obviously that no longer happens in, in the German <laughs> army uh, the, the, from the former uh, Eastern area, is that little simple vignette explains what is the root cause of the current Russian army's failure. That individual soldier, that guy in the turret when the tank commander is gone, he's gonna do his job until somebody tells him to do something else. And I saw one of my peers in, a, in an interview, which I kind of disagree with his statement. He said, well, all these troops in there uh, are volunteers and they're you know, regulars. And I said, well, they're not. When they formed the uh, battalion tactical groups, they do have contract, they call them contract soldiers. We'd call them regular soldiers on a normal like four year enlistment. Mm -hmm. But they're mostly filled out with volunteers from the rest of the conscript uh, force. So as a result, you may have some contract or regular officers are wearing stripes, excuse me, not officers, but soldiers, but they're still conscripts. They're not getting a better level of training because they're a contract officer. They're getting the same training that the conscripts. What we would think of, we've got a, a, a Lance Corporal in the Marines or a private first class in the army. We're gonna train him to be a tank commander. He may be the driver now, but he has to pass the same gunner skill test as everybody in that crew. So he has to be able to man the gunner's position, the loader's position, the driver's position, and the commander's position. And he's just a private. Uh, their system doesn't work that way. If you're the driver, you're the driver. If you're the gunner, you're the gunner. And if you're the loader, there's no loader because they got no loader. So, and you do your two years or whatever, and then you're gone. You never train for the other position. You train for the position you're in because you only got them for two years. Mm. So as a result, again, another problem down at the NCO core level is the pipeline that the soldiers are trained in. So again, we're seeing on the battlefield now the, the weakness of that training system. When you were working with the Ukrainian military, you know, I, with the United States, we have to constantly be thinking about different threats and training for an insurgency or a near peer threat. It's, it's this balance. Was Ukraine, has Ukraine for a while now been solely focused on the possibility of a Russian incursion? Well, you've got to remember, they've been, they've been fighting Russians since 2015 in the Donbass, okay, Donbasin, excuse me. And as a result, uh, they've been focused on fighting Russians. And here's kind of an interesting thing you brought it up is, it be, you know, a California National Guardsman knew the Ukrainian army was going to fight and fight like hell. Uh, there was no doubt it was going to roll over. Even if they took out the president, they would continue to fight. You know, that's the illusion and the pipe dream of Putin's that he would be able to go in, take out the government, order the army to stand down, and that would end the war. Mm -hmm. You know, commentators, newspaper people may have believed that, but nobody in the National Guard that worked for the Ukrainians would ever believe that. But when you actually look at the force ratios, 
you have Russians attacked at a 1.1 to 1. And you go, wait a minute, I've made basic military training means if you're gonna win in an attack, you gotta be three to one. Now, you know, today we don't just count soldiers, we count combat systems. And so, you know, if you add that, they got a 1.5 to a one against the Ukrainians. So they crossed the border with insufficient forces to actually win the fight, right out, like the blitz that they wanted. They didn't have the forces. I mean, when I sat down, they had 75 tactical maneuver battalions cross the border initially. The Ukrainians have 51. Now, the Ukrainian army was 205,000 regulars and the Russians are crossing with 200,000 troops. The Ukrainians then have 900,000 reservists. So if you didn't win on day one or two, any, including the Russian senior command had to know it was gonna turn into a fight like we're having now. I mean, it's just obvious. I mean, any professional military would, would do that just by looking at the ratios of combat power that are crossing the border. Uh, so, you know, while everybody was projecting that uh, Russia would overwhelm them, well, the Russians could not afford to put 2 million men in to attack Ukraine. They couldn't afford it. They could barely afford the supplies and the munitions and the fuel for a 200,000 man force to attack Ukraine. So you're looking at on day one, they never had the combat ratios to actually do the knockout punch that everybody was projecting before the war. Uh, you know, we're talking, they have, if you look at the charts that they put up before the war, Russians have 12,000 tanks and the Ukrainians only have 2,000 tanks. Well, yeah, that's true. But the Russians only crossed the border with between 714, 1,400. And the Ukrainians have 2,000 tanks. They didn't even have a superiority. Where, of course, they had the biggest superiority was aircraft. But we saw their shock and awe campaign on day one, and it really was a fizzle and a pop. According to, they were supposed to knock out the command control system and the, the governmental infrastructure, right? And take out the Ukrainian Air Force. They didn't do any of those. Still? Our, our, the, yeah, the NATO campaign to take out the Iraqi equivalent was 15 days long. And theirs was one day and they thought they would be able to topple the government. You know, so and, well, somebody these, wasn't looking at the combat ratios. Interesting. These, <laughs> these issues you're talking about, Dad, it's, it's very easy to understand at the soldier level. The soldier has the wrong radio yep. in his truck. He can't talk to the truck in front or behind him. That's a problem. Right. That has one day of water, one day of fuel, whatever it might be. But you can't assume that that stops there. That would be the same in their Air Force, I would imagine. That would be the right. same in mobilizing the reserves. Throwing out numbers of 12,000 tanks, sounds like realistically that's probably not accurate. Right. Well, to give the Air Force is good, a good example is uh, I'm not an Air Force expert, but what I've, what I've been hearing is they've been using second-line second aircraft in the war against Ukraine. They can't use their first-line aircraft in Ukraine because they got to keep that in case we decide to go in and try and put up a no-fly zone or whatever. They need that to oppose NATO. So as a result, mm. they're using second-line aircraft, which happen to be the same ones that the Ukrainians have, and they're not getting air superiority, you know, for... Um, a number of reasons they can't they don't seem to be able to put a package together like nato does that has a wild weasel to jam radar that has uh special missiles to take out uh ukrainian air to air to ground radars when they pop on to, to launch a missile um they don't be able to put the packages together that the nato and the united states air force uh can do uh they're just flying the aircraft across the the border, I assume there's a wild weasel or something and they're trying, but now they got to contend with, you know, man pads, shoulder fired anti-aircraft uh, as they're coming in to old traditional strafing runs and rocket runs, they're well within a stinger umbrella to, to take out. So as a result, they're a little hesitant to risk their air force in large numbers like NATO would uh, for to do a, uh, an attack for a 24 hour period. And the Ukrainians have their own like fixed wing 
aircraft. I mean, their own fighter jets. Yeah. I imagine they're probably American made, aren't they? Oh, no. They're, they're, they're uh, exactly what the Russians are flying. For the, the fixed SU, wing, too. Uh, okay. Second line. Uh, that's why when Poland wanted to give basically their entire air force to uh, Ukraine and requested backfill of F-16s from us, you know, the Ukrainian air force are all Soviet-style aircraft. Mm. Interesting. You know, there are MiGs and SUs and, and things like that. Uh, now, they only had about 100 of them when it started. But as we saw the inability to coordinate assaults, uh, uh, aircraft, uh, and coordinate the packages that our Air Force and the NATO aircraft can, they weren't able to do that. They weren't able to, they don't have air security today. And we're like three or four weeks into uh, the ground campaign. They still don't have air security. And again, they have an overwhelming number of aircraft in theory uh, that they should be able to hunt down and, and take them out, but they haven't been able to. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. It's like they, they took action and all of a sudden it's showing all of these cracks in the armor that I think for 10, 20, 30 years, we just assumed, we had to assume weren't there or had to assume that they'd been patched in some way. Um, yes. And that, that's actually a good analysis of it. We had to assume the worst. And mm. uh, we're finding out that all those things that we've heard over those years that, you know, didn't sound right. You couldn't, you know, who doesn't do maintenance on their truck, right? Um, you know, what do you do when you're not uh, training, you know, hanging around the barracks? You know, you, you know, all these things that we were hearing about Come to find out they're true and they're showing the cracks in their system you know the the best russian regiment in the world sits in the north uh, in fort Irwin at the national training area and we've all gone against it at one time or another in our crew and been embarrassed by them but that's the best russian brigade tactical group in the world and it sits at fort Irwin. so the joke so there well, the we assume, doesn't yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we assume that they're at least half as good as they are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because elite coordinating attacks and doing all these things, we assume they're half as good as the Fort Irwin, then it appears they don't have, they're not trained to the level of the Fort Irwin regiment, and they're not trained to the level of half of a normal American mechanized battalion or combined arms battalion. So the joke there is the unit at Fort Irwin are American soldiers. Um, that's a training unit designed to uh, serve as the, op the opposing force for training exercises. So American forces would go up against this, this mock Russian or adversarial unit that's organized like a Russian unit and supposed to operate like one. So saying that that's the best Russian unit. <laughs> and I do think, and it's an interesting perspective just talking about I mean, I guess I'll label them as the boogeyman, right? Because the boogeyman's out there and we don't know what they have. And it's because it's behind a curtain, we have to sort of guess of what's behind it. And we're going to round up in that thing. But I, there's also, I think, a cost to over rounding up too. Because I, I do think there's a perception of Russia being, um, well, not just the military might that we're talking about, uh, the perception of it at least, but even like, the population, I do think that there's this, and I will call it a misnomer that the Russians are like the Chinese in a sense, where just vast numbers of people and quantity. And it's because, yeah, lots of Russians did die in World War II and massive casualties and deaths, millions and millions and millions of people. But Russia, I'm talking Russia, not what was the Soviet Union, but the Russia, I think what's interesting is it's, it's, uh, it's not even half the size of the United States from a population density standpoint. And I think that that's real interesting too. Again, when we're describing this, um, this perceived enemy, this perceived threat that is out there, which is ongoing, but it's not infinite, right? They are finite. They, they're limited by personnel. They're limited by resources, like we all are. Right. right. And actually, when you do the numbers, when they say the military force is 2 million, well, the American military forces are 2 million. When you count all the reserves and the National Guard uh, and the regulars of all the branches, you know, we weigh in about that same amount mm -hmm. with, again, a larger population. Um, so 
Uh, one of the interesting points you brought up about the Russian people, who I love, by the way, um, you know, how did this propaganda that Putin was spouting play? Now, most of the world kind of scoffs at it. He was worried about the West coming. Uh, and these are real concerns to a Russian. You got to remember, unlike how we view the world, they view the world as hostile and they're in the middle. You know, their first problem was the Mongols. Now, the Mongols were the only invader coming from the East. After that, you had the Teutonic Knights. You had the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. You have the Swedes who attack Russia. <clears throat> then we have, of course, Napoleon comes in and tries to take over. Uh, and all of the invaders up to that point, they actually wound up uh, like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth occupied all of Ukraine. So they have a legitimate worry. But then when you continue on to World War I, what people forget about the invasion coming from Western Europe by the Germans and Austrians, in 1917, when the uh, Russians were knocked out of the war, part of that peace treaty gave Germany and Austria all of Ukraine up to the Volga. They only had it for one year and then the Russian Civil War, but they, the Germans and the Austrians owned a large part of, of that area. Then you go score to World War I and World War II, I mean, World War II, excuse me, 20 million Russians are killed uh, civilians and military. And so that when the Russians roll into Europe, they want a buffer. You know, they've got five centuries of invaders coming from the West. And we look at it a little differently, you know, global communism, but they actually look at it as the West is a threat. So mm. when you look at Putin, when he started voicing his greater Russian sphere of influence, this was in the 90s. You know, we're looking at him and his oligarchs, a slow build to reestablishing a Russian style economic empire. And here's the problem with Ukraine. Not only did their army improve, they're a liberal democracy. And if you're an oligarchy, um, guess what? The biggest threat is not the Ukrainian military, it's the liberal democracy on your border, only a few hundred kilometers from Moscow. And mm. there's a lot of Russian people that want that type of government, as we're seeing in the protests in Russia and things like that. So when he was spinning this yarn about protect, he's invading to protect Russia from, a, from an expansion of NATO and things like that, how that, he wasn't playing to the world, he was playing to the people. Everyone in Russia, everyone in Russia has a relative or a great grandma that fought, or a great grandpa that fought in the Great Patriotic War. Mm -hmm. Everyone in Russia has family members uh, that were killed during the Great Patriotic War. And so when he talked about stopping Nazism in Ukraine from rolling into, um, Russia, everybody kind of viewed it as, wait a minute, the president of Ukraine is Jewish. They forgot the 20 million Russians that were killed during World War II, and they focused on the Holocaust when they said denazification. And so that's the propaganda, not for us who know better, but for his people who will have a limited access to, to um, uh, news. And it, played, it would play very well to a Russian audience who had these tragedies in their life, you know. I, uh, I was gonna say, I totally agree with that. I, I, we, I do think we in the United States lose that or don't have that perspective of the Soviet, or I'm sorry, Russian, well, Soviet, uh, World War II <laughs> experience yeah. with the fact that almost 30 million people died and we had a generation of males, essentially, uh, uh, within a certain age range that did that job for us as a whole nation. You know, we right. sent over our 18 to 25-year-olds, give or take, males from across the country, whereas they had, it was, it was the son, the father, and the grandfather fighting, and the women, to right. think about that, to think about Stalingrad with 3 million people 
that died. And this comes after all the famines and whatnot of, well, the, the stuff in Ukraine was Stalin yeah. and whatnot. The amount of tragedy and suffering that the people have had over, well, you're talking about the West encroaching. I'd almost throw, there's maybe an argument to even throw uh, attributing the czar, the, the generations of the yeah. czars to the West as well because they're all right. related to that sort of way of thinking or mode of life. Um, and I'm, now, I'm totally with you. We just can't discount that. Well, the interesting thing is, as Western Europe went uh, clean and green energy, Putin and his oligarchs saw an opportunity to get them hooked on uh, Russian oil and basically Finland, uh, turn them into another Finland from the Cold War because they're so dependent. You know, the first, you know, the, again, I love the German people too. The, uh, I trained with the German army just as much as I trained with the Ukrainian army. And um, when the war started, it appeared on the newspapers and, and the news media that Russia, Germany was kind of not behind uh, the NATO effort because they were overly dependent on Russian and oil and gas. And then that some fiasco by some minister sending 5,000 helmets to Ukraine as opposed to ammunition. And of course, the next day that was completely taken care of. You know, some minister probably has a broken nose, um, you know, as another minister came in and whacked him. Um, but uh, the Putin was hoping to divide NATO by the European Union's uh, dependence on Russian oil and natural gas. And of course, in the middle of the winter, you know, when they were actually would need it for heating their homes and things like that. So, uh, you know, this campaign has been planned out for a long period in Putin's mind as he rose to power. And if you see the, um, you know, the escalation started in Georgia, he had gotten the oil and things in place. So he figured, I'm going to test the resolve of the West by attacking little tiny Georgia. And his army blitzes it in a, in a relatively short period of time. He rips off two oblasts or districts, made them independent. And we put on sanctions and it really didn't have much of an impact. So they go, guess what? We've had appeasement. Now we, at the time, didn't think it was appeasement. We thought we were doing the right thing and that we were putting the pressure. But from the oligarch's viewpoint, these sanctions really weren't that big. And so what about the suffering of the Russian people? Mm -hmm. Didn't affect us. Next, next attempt was getting the uh, fixing election in Ukraine, getting the pro-Russian guy in there in 2013, then the Euro Maiden uh, revolt revolution that threw him out. And then all of a sudden there were separatists in Eastern Ukraine. And I remember seeing the pictures of those and there was an awful lot of spetsnaz and Russian special forces and airborne. You could tell because one, they look like an American seal. You know, they could mm. bench press the tank and they were all wearing their striped white and blue t-shirts. Uh, they just the took the Russian forces. flag off the uniform, yeah. Yeah, they just took the Russian flag <laughs> and they're in there and of course, to make sure the picture looked good, they got a couple old guys that had pot bellies and stuff in there. But you're looking at all these separatists and they don't look very separatists to me. They look very much right out of the SEAL training program down in San Diego. Mm. Um, and of course, that fight, you know, lasted uh, hot for, for two years. <clears throat> and we put more sanctions on. And guess what? We thought the sanctions were having an effect. But when the smoke cleared, the Russians were still in those separatist areas. Uh, and there was a the hot front line <clears throat> between the Ukrainian army and the separatist army. Uh, and that's been going on for eight years. So, you know, again, in their mind, the sanctions were a slap on the wrist. In our mind, <clears throat> we thought they were working because Russia seemed to have calmed down uh, until relatively recently. So if you go back in hindsight, which of course is 2020, you can see Putin and the oligarchies plan as they were slowly going forward to this Ukrainian invasion, uh, that they were, they were seeing it as a appeasement and we thought we were actually, you know, socking it to them. Now, of course, the sanctions being imposed now are completely different than those, sure. those two situations. Uh, you know, they're like night and day. 
so the, can, you know, can you explain really why? Yeah, could you explain? Because what I hear is, yeah, sanctions in Georgia, and then you hear sanctions in early Ukraine, and now you hear the word sanctions again now. It, it, initially, to me, it does sound like sanctions don't work because <laughs> they're doing what they want. Well, but you just said a big distinction with they're different now. Can you kind of go into that yeah. as to why? Well, if, if you look at the thing, I'm not an economic expert, but when you look at what's going on on the banking system, basically you're setting it up so that the Russians are going to default on their, um, you know, their loans and their debt and that sort of thing. They can't move money. Now, again, that really hurts the Russian people, but it really impacts the oligarch because they're the guys with all the money. Mm -hmm. So you have that sanction is, is now, to give an example, two of the oligarchs have disappeared, right? If you look at the news, two of them kind of disappeared. Was that a coup mm -hmm. attempt? Remember, these guys mm -hmm. are all former KGB guys, right. so, or, or FSB as they call it today. Uh, so when you start looking that those economic sanctions that are being put on aimed at the oligarchy's control of the country, <clears throat> you're starting to see cracks develop and are quickly paved over. Now, you know, yes, there is there a spontaneous movement for uh, against the invasion by the Russian people? Sure. But guess what? Most movements have to have somebody with money behind them to organize them. So the fact that the Russian people are coming out in mass against the uh, uh, invasion gives us an indication that somebody with money in Russia is behind them. Again, showing that it's not quite as solid backing by the oligarchy to Putin as uh, we would believe. So in my case, the sanctions that we are imposing are working and that President Biden and his experts are trying to remember, Biden's got the hardest job in the world. He has to know two, two things. He's got to know a bad decision from a worse decision. Mm. He's got to prevent us from going into World War III in a nuclear exchange. Yeah. So when, well, emotionally, I may not believe in not putting my foes on, no fly zone over Ukraine, the general in me knows, no, he knows what he's doing because as soon as one pilot of ours shoots a anti-aircraft battery of theirs, we've just crossed the line. That's what me an no-fly zone means, as we all yeah, know. Yeah, that's right. Type thing. So, you know, Biden knows what he's doing. You may not like it, but you got to back it. Uh, because remember, Biden, unlike other presidents, you know, in the, of this century, is a Cold War warrior. He went through the entire Cold War in the Senate. He knows how to interact with Russian KGB-minded people. And so, and he's got the best advisors in the world sitting in that situation room with him. So they're plotting out, how do we stop the invasion and get things back to the status quo without it tripping over into World War III? And you can know when, when the Russians are panicking, they shot a missile at uh, a conventional missile at Yavriv training area in Western Ukraine. That's only 10 to 20 kilometers from the Polish border. If they had screwed up on the targeting, and it's a legitimate target, it's an ammo supply point according to the news. If they just landed in Ukraine, I mean in Poland, you already, you already ratcheted it up. Yeah. Even if it just hit a field, uh, you're now ratcheting it up towards World War III. So again, Biden has got the hardest job in the world and, and I support him 150% on everything that he does. Because he knows, unlike us who are having unclassified sources, he's reading the Russian mail. Sure. I, I do have that. to ask real quick, though. I want to ask on that point, because this is just my perspective as like, a, let's say, just a, a veteran now who's a civilian, totally out of the gate. Um, how does that fit? Well, but, correct. And my question is, how does that assessment, what you just described, and I'm not pointing fingers on any one administration at all or right. trying to go down a rabbit hole. But to me, the last summer fiasco with Afghanistan and just the way that was handled, the we flew out 100,000 people, of which only a very small percentage were actually the interpreters and the people that have been allies for 20 years. We stranded them. Afghanistan is just 
uh, it's, it's a hopeless situation. And uh, while it's been hopeless for a long time, we are, our hands are also dirty in that scenario. And my question is, is it just like, I don't understand this. I don't have much trust and confidence in a lot of these decision makings, just kind of watching, well, actually being a person in Afghanistan 10 years, over 10 years ago, and to still see how that was handled for the following 10 from all of these advisors and things. I don't personally have a lot of faith and confidence. Now, my question is, is it because it's just a different scenario? Afghanistan doesn't matter in relation to Soviet, you know, Russia and, and, and the, the scale of, of what could happen. Whereas Afghanistan is at the end of the day, while its uh, lives have been lost and we shouldn't forget that, it is still more of a thorn on the side in the side from a foreign policy perspective. And that's why it might be more rip and bandaid off in that scenario versus what we have going on with what we do with Russia. I don't know. And, and you're, you're exactly right. I have Afghani friends who uh, had family in the, uh, you know, in the refugees, things like that. You know, I love them to dearly. They're great people, but it's a thorn. Hmm. Uh, it always has been a thorn. Um, you know, I'm with you, you know, when we decided to do what we did is like, okay, my job is to soldier on. Um, the situation here is we're really in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but Khrushchev was a reasonable man mm -hmm. in his system. He survived the Stalin system and everything else. What most people don't know is we caused the Cuban Missile Crisis because we put missiles in Turkey. Right. And the Khrushchev's reaction to the missiles in Turkey was to put missiles in Cuba. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, we almost came to blows until, but we had rational people on both sides, you know, realizing it. So they backed down, found a, got a mid-level guy to, you know, cut a deal and we cut the deal and it, and it backed up. So, in, in, in seriousness, this is at the same level as the Cuban Missile Crisis, hmm. minus an important part on the opposition side. This, Putin is no Khrushchev. Hmm. Okay. His history shows him as a risk taker and a guy that pushes. That's how he made his way up in the KGB. And that's how he became the leader of the oligarchs who were ripping off the Russian uh, people uh, and making their billions at the expense of the Russian government. Uh, so that's why he's their leader. He's a risk taker. Uh, but at the same time, those oligarchs know that if the first nuke is popped, if chem chemical weapons are used, we've crossed the line to a confrontation to the burn to World War III. Uh, so, while he may be a risk taker, the rest of those oligarchs don't want to lose everything. Everybody loses if it crosses that line. Sure. Uh, and they don't want to lose in that sense. So, uh, so in that sense, the situation in Afghanistan, uh, again, it's a thorn in our side. This is a thorn, more than a thorn. This is looking at, this is a problem for the entire world, uh, this invasion, because it could really lead to a nuclear confrontation. It almost sounds, I know Preston, you didn't got to talk to, but the, I'm uh, the only thing that I was going to say is it sounds worse than the, when you say Cuban Missile Crisis, that definitely put a light bulb in my head. But when you described it, it almost sounds worse in the sense that uh, with the fact of um, not having both reasonable minds, that's important. And then just the fact that World War II is not within living memory. You know, those guys are a hundred now. <laughs> Back then, I mean, that, those 30 million that died for the Soviets and those that lived under Stalin, they were still around. I mean, they remembered all of that and the consequences of war. We've had it really lucky in, in a lot of ways with war on the global scale to not, it's easy to forget those things, I think. It is. And that's why it's important to, to remind uh, the public of those things is because pretty much all of our wars, including Vietnam, were relatively small casualty rates coming back. Um, the um, impact on the family once the draft went away was minimal. I have, I'm a commissioner in the Boy Scouts and pretty much all the scouts in the troops that I uh, help oversee, they haven't had a person 
a family member in the military in two or two, almost three generations mm -hmm. since the draft. Uh, and they really have no concept of what you and we were talking about here, World War III, the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, that is an ancient history lesson in a history book to them, hmm. to their parents. You know, um, you know, my son is 34, major in the, in the Army National Guard, and that was all history lessons for him. Now, of course, he knows being a guardsman going through all the training. He knows the, uh, uh, the danger R Russia poses. But again, it's still a history lesson. Yeah. You know, all of my, you know, my uncles, my great uncles that fought in those wars are gone. And so he's only hearing second and third or fourth hand stories of, uh, you know, of their uh, deeds and adventures or misadventures. Uh, uh, so again, it's, it's kind of a forgot, even the Cuban Missile Crisis, like at the ranch here, we're stocked for about eight months uh, of food and supplies. Not that I'm a survivalist, uh, but I always had that stocked. And when COVID came, we basically hunkered down for six months and never left the, left the ranch because of the supplies we have on hand. Mm. Um, you know, there's no rush at the store to buy food. You know, if I was anybody, I would make sure I have at least a couple of weeks right. of supplies on here uh, because we don't know what's going to happen. And again, that's why Biden has the hardest job in the world, as General Henri said and when I was a colonel when he was whacking me with a stick, you know, and training us, is um, generals get paid for only two decisions, 2% 2 of the decisions. You know, you got all these smart staff officers and staff and COs to come up with 98%. But a general or president's got to know a bad decision from a worse decision. Mm. No matter what you, what you make, somebody's going to criticize you on it. Somebody says you should have done something else, but you've got to know the bad from the worst. And obviously you have to take the bad decision. So, you know, same thing with the evacuating Afghanistan. It had to happen. Now, we, we all know that it had been planned months or years ahead. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was an op, op plan on some shelf uh, you know, a year before it actually happened. Uh, but it just happened, the decision, final bad decision to make it was under Biden's administration. Could have been under Trump's, could have been under whoever follows next if we decided to stay longer. Sure. Uh, but somebody had to make a decision, time yeah. to pull out, goes to the general staff, execute. They take the op plan off the shelf, dust it off and, and execute it. Mm. Well, as we start to wrap up here, um, to focus back on the, the, the war on the ground right now, in your opinion, does Ukraine have the ability to mount any sort of counterattack or are they primarily in a defend and hold type situation? You mean not counting the one today where they took a suburb of Kiev back? I got to read up on that. <laughs> Basically what I think is going to happen in the long run. You know, these little counterattacks, we know, are going to take place, uh, opportunity to regain a defensive uh, um, opportunity. Uh, but there's a good chance that this thing will continue on until both sides run out of ammo. Uh, they're, they're burning up stocks at a, at a heavy rate. Uh, Russia can't necessarily replace them. Uh, you know, from the Ukrainian side, you know, Javelin missiles and the British missiles, and they take missiles, all the other equipment is being you know, rushed to them. Uh, and again, they're burning it up at a, at a heavy rate. Uh, none of the uh, factories on either side, uh, either on NATO's side or in Ukraine or in Russia are on a war footing you know, to, to produce. Uh, so the bottom at the far end of it is someplace along the line uh, in the next four to eight weeks, I envision running, running out of, uh, they're going to run out of stocks. North of Ukraine, north of uh, Kiev, the Russians have gone on to the defensive. Some units have actually dug in and laid minefields, which to me tells that there one or two things are happening. They're massing for another uh, attack someplace else. So they're putting either second rate troops in um, to put in a defensive front so that they can mass someplace else, or they're pulling units out of line to, to refit them. Uh, remember, they started with about 87 battalion tactical groups. My count, at least from the last, they got about 120 of their 170 tactical groups now committed to the Ukrainian uh, war. Uh, 
uh, but a lot of them were chewed up and mm -hmm. have been rotated out. Uh, so hmm. I think as you know, the attrition war is going to continue. Uh, that's where those sanctions come in. Those sanctions would prevent Russia from being able to uh, get the raw materials, you know, for their factories to produce the munitions and the tires and the replacement parts. It's going to come down to a logistics war uh, because they couldn't knock out Ukraine in the beginning, you know. So my guess is by May, we will be in a either a static situation or, uh, as both sides, uh, you know, ammunition supplies, you know, dip down into a, a critical area. Um, but again, the sanctions will continue. Now, what's going to happen is since Ukraine is a exporter of food to the Middle East, prices in food are going to go up. Uh, obviously, gas prices are going up because we've taken the Ukrainian, I mean, the Russian fuel out of the race. So, you know, the world is going to feel the impact of the war, mm -hmm. you know, over this period of time. Do you think the, I do have a question though with the, because um, you did mention the the 1.1 to 1.5 ratio, right, of the Russians invading. That, right. but that can be compounded with uh, assets, like you said. And you've got supply right. running thin and you've got logistics, you got morale issues probably. Does all, and I don't want to fear monger here, but do all of those, and you have an unhinged sort of leader that's not reasonable. So we've discussed all of these things. What we haven't discussed right. is not the fear monger, but the nuclear option. Do those variables lend to that tilting the scale back into Russian favor? Not really, uh, because remember, Putin is the first of equals. And uh, he's got all those oligarchies. Now he's you know, taken out a couple, but as more pressure goes in, going to a nuclear option means you lose. Mm. Even if he pops a tack nuke on a, a tank battalion someplace, you, that means you lose. Mm. You know, NATO might put the no-fly zone in then, then you have a direct engagement between Russians and NATO uh, pilots and ground crews. Again, if you take that step, it's a lose-lose. And when Putin actually mentioned the nuclear option in that meeting with his table, that's about the range of a 22 caliber bullet, um, the, uh, the generals in the room, according to the you know, analysts, their eyes about bugged out because he hadn't talked to them about the nuclear option. So, Remember, if he pops one, everybody loses all the way down the line that's ruling Russia. Mm. So again, there's a good chance you might have a uh, change of regime or a change of leadership uh, if somebody gets close to that. Uh, the one thing that can't happen, the, the, there's a misnomer that he's been throwing out as a, as a uh, uh, condition of of a ceasefire is a neutralization of Ukraine, making it non-militarized. What that means is the Ukrainian people lose their liberty because what his definition is, the partnership for peace where the California works with Ukraine, uh, the fact that we provide them with uh, anti-tank missiles, things like that, that, that neutralizes Ukraine's ability to defend itself from Russia. Hmm. And so we all know that will not be uh, president, uh, the president of Ukraine is not going to take that option because basically his people lose their freedom. Yeah. Next day, uh, even if his government stays in place, the fact that they can no longer defend themselves means they're now a puppet. And part of that becoming neutral is to join the Eurasian uh, economic uh, uh, group which Russia and a couple of other countries are a member of, uh, so that instead of being part of the European Union, they're part of the Russian economic sphere of influence, which I do not think Ukraine would, would stand for. So mm -hmm. we're looking at uh, the nuclear option is always on the table. That's why Biden is making decisions the way he does, and, he, and I think he's 100% correct. You know, the general in me, not the emotional pro-Ukrainian part. Um, but, um, I don't envision it crossing that line. Uh, again, because of the pressure Putin has on his own from his own government. 
it's just interesting and it does at least sound and i don't want to discount all the deaths and travesty from the war but it sounds like there's at least some semblance of common sense that is in the air at least because a lot of it isn't reasonable but to think at least there's someone on the they've got a headspace to make smart decisions at least to some degree i mean that is what we all want right because yeah the oligarchs on to us is not even on the continent in america we don't want that right exactly and again the oligarchs are in there for their own self-interest and if that happens everybody loses and they want their million billion dollar yacht back Mm. you know it's crazy that they had these billion dollar yachts right out of uh james bond um but they do and you know they wouldn't be where they are if they weren't greedy um and uh interested in their own self-interest so sure he's got to keep all those people have their own and probably have their own private armies uh just like a a character out of james bond uh he's got to keep them all in check and balanced Mm. Well, it's complicated. It was complicated and it still is. So um, this helped me a lot. There was a lot of, uh, especially the tidbits around um, the challenges within the Russian army, something that I hadn't thought a lot about, but thank you so much, sir, for taking the time to talk today, answer some of these questions. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. We, I feel like I could talk for hours. So really appreciate you taking the time to have this chat with oh, us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Hey, if you've got an extra 16 seconds, it would really mean a lot to me if you left a review for War Stories. I read every single one of those, and we'll do our best in coming episodes to maybe shout some of those out just as a way of saying thank you for taking the time. But either way, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.